0: Right now, a group of hundreds of migrants is making its way from Honduras, through Guatemala, towards the United States. They're traveling on foot, putting miles between themselves and a country that's become especially dangerous it has one of the highest murder rates in the world. Well, John, this is a caravan made up of mothers and children, family, all saying that they are escaping violence and poverty. And when I talk about violence- The people you know, on this I'm march on are leaving behind feet difficult feet lives, for sure. But this event, it feels political, too. Journalists are invited along. They're tweeting out messages from the road. 12-year-old Mario told a Guatemalan news site he's left his mother behind and he's traveling solo. Mario, ¿y tú con quién viajaste? Solo. Solo. ¿Y por qué? A young woman balancing a toddler on her lap said she's fleeing domestic violence. Police couldn't protect her from it. When this group walks through a village, they take it over. They fill the street. Some estimate there are 3,000 people in this group now. If they reach the US, Many of these people seem likely to be asking for the same thing — asylum. And the president seems determined to stop them. — right, uh, We've been telling you about the latest caravans of migrants packed with up to
1: 3,000 people making its way to the U.S. And by the way, the numbers are growing. President Trump has had it. — President Trump threatened to cut aid to Honduras this morning, writing, if the large caravan of people heading to the U.S. is not stopped and brought back to Honduras, no more money or aid will be given to Honduras effective immediately.
0: Government data shows that over the last few months, more families are being arrested at the border. And over the last decade, the number of immigrants applying for asylum has skyrocketed. So when a group of hundreds of immigrants heads to the United States all at once, what happens next? Darlene, the senior immigration reporter at Vox, is here. She says what happens to this group of migrants will reveal a lot about the inner workings of the U.S. immigration system right now. Stay with us. Back in August, Dara Lind wrote an article she called Beyond Family Separation, Trump's Ongoing War on Asylum Explained. When I talked to her this morning, I had just one question. How could this caravan of immigrants, many of them seeking asylum, show how the U.S. immigration system is changing? I started off by asking her to explain how the caravan got started in the first place.
1: So it started on Friday uh, in a town called San Pedro Sula, which is has had the dubious honor in several of the last a few of the last several years of being called the murder capital of the world. It's a very dangerous gang ridden city. Uh, as it moved through Honduras, it collected a bunch of other people who kind of saw it as an opportunity to escape their lives and go to the u s. the AP has a reporter on the ground and has been doing reporting from there. And some of the people who are have joined the caravan have been, you know, in fear of their lives from police or gangs. Some of them have just been impoverished and have been saying, you know, I can't live on the money that I'm making. I can't feed my children. So my best shot is to try to make it up to the U.S. They had about— over a 1,000 people on Monday, uh, by the time they reached the Guatemala border, and the government of Guatemala had said that they were going to stop anyone in the caravan from coming in, but after a standoff of several hours, the government blinked, essentially, and allowed the caravan to go through. So when a 1,000 people show up at your border, like, what do you do? Well, so it's it's worth stepping back a little to why you'd have a group of a thousand people kind of aggregating to begin with, right? Right. It's not like no one in Honduras has ever thought about going to the US before. In the last several years, the composition of people who are showing up at the U.S.-Mexico border has changed dramatically. Mexico isn't the majority nationality for people who are getting apprehended crossing the border between ports of entry, which is to say crossing illegally. Instead, people from Guatemala, from Honduras, and from El Salvador have kind of taken over. And a lot of those are people who are not necessarily just kind of coming to work, right? They're coming for some mix of economic and humanitarian reasons. But the U.S. government has responded to this by putting pressure on the Mexican government to, you know, quote unquote enforce its southern border, right? To serve as an auxiliary to the US so that people don't even show up at the US-Mexico border to begin with. That's created the idea of a caravan in large part because it means that there's safety in numbers, that, you know, if you're part of a group of 1,000 people, you're less likely to be detained and deported or worse by Mexican authorities that have really been cracking down on Central American migration. You're less likely to be taken advantage of by smugglers or by kind of opportunistic criminals along the route through Mexico. So it's kind of both a reflection and a challenge to U.S. border policy. And this caravan that's getting so much attention right now,
0: it's happening at the same time that people around the border are flagging that there's already been a surge of immigrants, right?
1: So Donald Trump cracked down on the U.S.-Mexico border in part because of his obsession with the last caravan in April. And then after that, there has been a surge in the number of particularly family units, you know, families coming usually, again, from these Northern Triangle countries, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, often coming to seek asylum. When Trump first freaked out about this, numbers were pretty consistent with where they'd been in previous years. It's just that they were higher than they were in the first three months of the Trump administration. But as the summer has continued and as the family separation policy was first instituted and then you know, abandoned by Trump and then semi-permanently enjoined by a federal judge, the numbers have continued to grow to the point where in August and September, there really have been an unusually high number of families getting apprehended between ports of entry. The asterisk here, by the way, is that there hasn't been an increase in the number of families presenting themselves legally for asylum at ports of entry, that's been down over the last few months, and that's raised serious concerns because one of the things the Trump administration has done in response to the to the caravan earlier this year, in response to concerns about asylum generally, has been what it calls metering. It's been only allowing a few asylum seekers in at a time, and it's telling people who just show up to present themselves, that they can't step on U.S. soil yet. They have to wait. You know, Sometimes they're given a number. Sometimes they're told to wait six weeks. Sometimes they're just told to come back later. There are, are a lot of concerns about that policy. And one of them is that if you're telling people that they won't be able to get asylum for another six weeks and they're desperate, they may very well decide to cross the border illegally rather than waiting to present themselves for asylum legally. Because even if you cross between ports of entry, you're you're committing a federal misdemeanor, but you're still allowed to seek asylum once you're caught. So we've seen
0: this surge in people coming and this caravan that's on its way. But you
1: raise this point. How many of these people are actually going to be able to stay in the U.S.? So there is definitely a big difference between the number of people who present themselves for asylum and even who are allowed to, you know, who pass the kind of first screening interview. It's called a credible fear interview, which allows them to kind of plead a fuller asylum case and the number of people who are ultimately granted asylum. Some of that is because, you know, some people ultimately pass their first screening interview but they a, ju- a judge ultimately finds that they don't qualify for asylum as it's laid out in US law because not all threats to safety are considered you know, persecution under the way that the U.S. frames it. You have to be persecuted on the basis of particular categories of your identity. The other thing that often happens is that people just kind of fall out of the process, that especially if they have been released from detention, uh, while that does give them the opportunity to get lawyers, which means that, you know, if they are represented, they're more likely to succeed with their case, they may miss their court hearing because, you know, either because they skipped out on it or because they just didn't know when and where it was. They may not know that in addition to their court hearing, they have to file a written asylum application within a year of arriving in the U.S. So the process is long and complicated enough that by the time you reach the kind of final decision phase, you've got a lot fewer people. And so it sounds like from your reporting, because we don't know what's happening
0: with these families, that the Trump administration is taking a tack of trying to prevent asylum seeking at the beginning of the process versus at the end.
1: Absolutely. I mean, they absolutely want to maximize the number of people who, upon getting apprehended, are deported quickly and efficiently. Uh, they've taken some policy made some policy moves to restrict the number of people who pass the initial screening interview. There are proposals about whether it's possible for a judge to just dismiss an appeal out of hand. Judges already are dismissing uh, appeals of screening denials at a much higher rate because they're under production quotas from the Department of Justice. But There's also an effort to prevent people from even getting to the border to begin with because the political power of people who come into the U.S. and get arrested still looks like some kind of incursion on border security. We saw that in 2014 when people, when there was a freak out about the border crisis then and it was people literally presenting themselves to border patrol agents to get asylum. But the fact that they had come in or even come close was viewed as a threat to sovereignty. So along with this, kind of metering process of limiting the number of people who are coming in legally through ports to present for asylum. There's coordination going on with the Mexican government, which is, of course, the same people who are trying to keep people from getting to the U.S.-Mexico border to begin with. They're also supposed to be managing the queues on the Mexican side. And there have been allegations from human rights groups there that the Mexican authorities aren't providing an orderly queue for people to get through, they're checking everybody's papers. And if you don't have legal papers in Mexico, you're getting pulled out of line and detained and deported. That's not super kosher under international law, to say the least. Uh, But it doesn't appear that the U.S. government is... As concerned with protecting the rights of asylum seekers as it is preventing them from coming to the U.S., from setting foot on U.S. soil, because that creates the legal right for them to, you know, apply seek humanitarian protection here. It feels like we're seeing this
0: push and pull just getting more aggressive on both sides. You know, we have... The policies, you laid out a bunch of policies that are changing to basically prevent asylum seeking on the front end. And then we see a caravan of people that's bigger than the caravan last time that is, you know, showing up and saying, you know, we're going to show up at the border with, you know, 1,000, 2,000 strong. What's going to happen here?
1: How does this play out? Well, we can look to the April caravan for some kind of illustrative example, right? What happened there was that Donald Trump was throwing a loud enough temper tantrum that the government of Mexico stepped in and attempted to forcibly disperse the caravan in southern Mexico. So, you know, that shrunk the size of the caravan. It didn't It didn't eliminate it entirely. And a few weeks later, in early May, where the caravan had entered Mexico in early April, I think— about 300 members of the caravan did present themselves at a US port of entry and say we're from the caravan we're seeking asylum we're here we're doing it legally and the US you know imposed metering on them it didn't allow any of them in the day they presented it allowed a few in the next day and let the rest in under subsequent days and weeks how many got in eventually I don't know how many of them have since been deported, but ultimately of the somewhere between 200 and 300, my understanding was that everyone who had been waiting at the San Ysidro Port of Entry was admitted within a couple of weeks. The question there is how many of those people gave up and decided to go between ports of entry. And in the meantime, the people who were waiting in Mexico to be kind of given their turn to be called up in line to cross were subjected to a couple of them were subjected to police harassment. One of them claims to have been beaten by police. A transgender woman from Guatemala said she was harassed. Um, one shelter in which some of them were staying was robbed by a group of armed men and then the door was set on fire. It's not exactly as if they, you know Tijuana was a safe environment for them. And Human Rights Watch has alleged that they talked they had a delegation there who talked to a Mexican immigration official who said the US had been pressuring Mexico to sweep the plaza where the caravan members were staying and check everybody's papers and you know implicitly they were supposed to be deporting the people whose Mexican travel visas had expired because they were being told to wait in Mexico for longer than they thought they were going to have to wait in Mexico so that didn't end up happening that time It is certainly not clear how many of the caravan members have, you know, have ultimately or will ultimately be able to get asylum in the U.S. But the kind of telling people to wait, not necessarily caring too much about the conditions in which they're waiting and trying to minimize the number who ultimately come through as opposed to getting caught en route does appear to be the playbook. And it's It's another form of deterrence. Right. I mean it's 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 not even deterrence. It's kind of the, you know, it's deportation, it's just deportation that's being outsourced to Mexico instead of the US having to do it.
0: You know, I have one more question for you, which is all this is taking place within 2-3 weeks of a big election here in the United States. We're already seeing Republicans claiming somehow Democrats are involved with this group of people coming up from Honduras. But politically, who is an event like this better for?
1: There was a really robust disagreement among human rights groups in Mexico uh, when the caravan came through in spring, right? Because the people who were putting it together said it was very important to call attention to what was happening. It was important to mobilize the Mexican populace to understand the human rights of migrants. uh, at the same time, it was pretty clear that U.S. policy toward asylum seekers was harsher after the caravan than it was before. So there's a good argument to be made that this kind of masses of people swarming the U.S.-Mexico border imagery is exactly what Donald Trump has run on from the beginning. Literally, his first campaign ad during the primary had this mass of people that it was portraying as immigrants trying to come into the U.S., and it was actually a photo from Morocco. Now they do have those kind of images. So there's an argument that it's certainly in line with how they see the world. The question, though, is how much this on the margin is going to mobilize people when the Trump administration has been saying for a year at this point that the U.S. is basically being invaded and that immigration is a critical issue. You know, when the National Guard was sent to the border in June, there were fewer people trying to come in than there are now, but they were already in crisis mode. So I think the question is whether this really makes all that much of a difference if they were already turning their rhetoric up to 11 Um,
0: Darlene, thank you so much for joining us and for putting all that in perspective. Thanks for having me on. This episode is brought to you by Discover. Before we wrap up today, just a couple more things that we're following. If you listened to our debut show yesterday, you'll remember that I talked to Dexter Filkins. He covers the Middle East for The New Yorker, and Jamal Khashoggi was a friend of his. Dexter explained why Jamal's disappearance had created a crisis for Saudi Arabia's ruling family. And he also made this prediction. It's clear that the Turks have had the Saudi consulate Bugged. bugged, wired. So if the saudi monarchy puts out some cover story that he was killed accidentally i think we're going to see the we're going to see an audio, audio recording of of the interrogation leaked pretty quickly that that's what i would guess and we're going to probably you know we're going to find out exactly how it, how it happened must be pretty gruesome though after we released the show yesterday we found out just how right dexter was The Wall Street Journal posted an article with gruesome details of Jamal Khashoggi's death. The journal cited Turkish officials who apparently shared audio of the killing with U.S. and Saudi authorities. Also, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell told reporters today he doesn't expect President Trump to cut or reform entitlement programs. But hold it, did we really expect Trump to cut or reform entitlement programs? Here's why that was an open question. The fiscal year that just ended marked the largest U.S. deficit in six years. And yesterday, McConnell said the deficit was being driven by Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, even though it's pretty well documented that there was an immediate 17% jump in the deficit after the Republican tax cuts were enacted. Anyway, McConnell says, everything's fine, guys. Continue collecting Social Security. Nothing to see here. One more thing. I learned a little bit of vocab today. Thought I'd share it with you. NPC. That stands for non-player character. It started off as a video game term for an avatar that's controlled by a computer, as opposed to a human gamer. An NPC is a puppet, a robot, someone who acts according to how she's coded. You can see where this is going. For the pro-Trump corridors of the internet, this is a new term for Trump's critics. And it's also a meme. So if you're scrolling around Twitter, you see a drawn image of a gray-faced 2D figure with dots for eyes, that's called an NPC. Maybe it has hair like Elizabeth Warren's or glasses like Christine Blasey Ford. Maybe the gray face is Photoshopped onto a picture of Colin Kaepernick. Trump supporters are saying, these people aren't thinking for themselves. They're just robots. So internet, thanks for that. That is our show today. We are piloting this thing in public for the next month, through the midterms. We'll be moving fast, breaking stuff, and we want to hear from you. What moved too fast? What broke? Email us, whatnext at slate.com. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, and produced by Mary Wilson and Jason DeLeon. Our engineer is Terrence Bernardo. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. He championed this show to the bosses here at Slate, and today is his last day good luck over at NBC, Steve. One more shout out to TJ Raphael, who made sure you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Mary Harris. Talk to you tomorrow.